My name is uh, Bruce O'Neill, and I'm the pastor here. And this morning, we are continuing our study of the gospel according to Mark. If you can find your way there, that would be great. We're in the uh, uh, fifth chapter. We're going to look at two stories uh, of Jesus' encounters with two people who need uh, healing. And one story is within the other story. So we're going to pick up on verse 21 to the end. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. And when Jesus had crossed again into the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. And a great crowd followed and a throng about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for about 12 years and who had suffered much under the physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. And he said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And and he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told uh, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they had said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion People weeping and wailing loudly, and when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laugh. But he put them all outside and took the child, child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. Taking her by hand, he said to her, Talitha kume which means, little girl, I say to you, rise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she uh, was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. I have some friends right after... Uh, Katrina uh, planted a church right there on the Gulf Coast. And I thought it was an unusual name. I'm, I'm not really 
uh, from the part of Louisiana where this language is used much, but it's Cajun. And so they named the church uh, Lanyap. And Lanyap is a, a Cajun for a little bit more. And what they mean by that is it's a way to call themselves Grace Presbyterian Church because it's one of the words that Cajuns use to describe what grace is. If you've ever been to Café Du Monde there in New Orleans, they have these donuts that uh, my children like, I like. They are powdered square donuts that are warm. And if you order a dozen of them, uh, they will give you a 13th donut. And they call that beignet lanyap because you didn't pay for it, you didn't ask for it, but it's a little bit more. It's kind of the idea behind grace as we look at these two incredible stories that they get what they don't ask for, they get more. You see, we have two stories, one of a woman who has had a hemorrhage, a bleeding for 12 years. In the ancient world, and particularly where where this woman lives, to have this particular disease, according to Leviticus 15, uh, she was considered unclean, which meant she couldn't go to worship. She couldn't go to synagogue. She couldn't be with God's people because if she touched someone, that would make them unclean and they couldn't go to worship. Or if someone accidentally touched her, That would make them unclean, and therefore they couldn't go to worship. So she wasn't allowed anywhere near the synagogue or anywhere near God's people. In fact, she wasn't even allowed in the marketplace because accidentally she might touch something that touches someone else, and that makes her unclean. She's a a transmitter of uncleanness. That's found in Leviticus 15, the rules of a bleeding and what you can and cannot do. But she wasn't just banned from worship. She wasn't just banned from the marketplace. More than likely, she lived alone because if she lived with her family, she would make them unclean. So here you have someone who has a disease for 12 years. She's probably living alone. She probably walks alone. She probably shops alone. She probably worships alone. And not only has that happened to her, but she has taken her entire wealth. It says that she's used her whole wealth, all of her money, to find a cure. And though she has gone through cure after cure, she's gone to every doctor she knows, spent all of her money. It's not only not helped her, sorry for the double negative, but it has also made her worse. In fact, the Talmud, which was written shortly uh, around this period, gives 11 different cures for hemorrhaging. Can you imagine that's your life? You know that has to stop because if it doesn't stop, you're alone in a very difficult world for a woman. And so that is where we are and that's what she is experiencing, but she's not the only one. You see, her story is embedded in a bigger story about a man who has a little girl about 12 years old, the same amount of time that this woman had been bleeding, who is sick And she's not just sick, she's gravely sick. She is going to die if she doesn't get help. He's not like uh, the woman who was bleeding. He's popular, he's got position, he's got prestige because he says he's a leader of the synagogue. And so he's got power and wealth and position. And yet he can't cure his daughter. 
And so he's desperate. Imagine how desperate he had to be to go to Jesus. You see, Jesus, this this Jesus is the guy that all of the uh, uh, leaders of the synagogues are thinking about how to kill how to snuff out his ministry, how to get rid of him. And he and Jairus has been part of these discussions, but he knows that just a Sunday ago, just a Saturday ago, a Sabbath ago, he took a man with a withered hand and straightened it out and healed him. He knows that it wasn't that long ago that there was a man that was on a stretcher that was lowered into the house and healed there. So he knows that this man can heal. He doesn't care anymore about the the position of he's the enemy and we're on the good side. We're the good guys and they're the bad guys. He's not worried about that anymore. He wants his daughter to be healed. So he humbles himself. He humiliates himself. And he goes to Jesus. And our text literally says, and it's a euphemism, it says that he implores him. What, what a weak word. It says that he begs him. He gets on his hands and knees and begs Jesus for help. You see, what these two stories teach us is that you and I, at some point in our lives, get desperate enough that we're finally open to grace. Before that, we think we've got it. We think we're in control. We think we're the boss. We think that we've got the way. And it's only when there's no hope, we finally will hope in Jesus. You see, this text has two stories about two people who are desperate enough for grace. And they become the recipients of grace that I hope all of us in this room who come with whatever problem, whatever, whatever uh, desperation you feel, you're finally open. We are finally open to grace. And the truth is, Jesus gives them grace, but not the grace that they're asking for, but more. Jesus not only gives Lanyap, He is Lanyap. He gives them himself, which is not what they were looking for. And so first, I I want to take us a little bit through the story of of this uh, woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. She's untouchable, and yet she gets touched. She's untouchable, but she gets a touch. And sometimes we, we don't think that's very big, but it is humongous in the first century. And would it be true today if we were untouchable. This woman has been bleeding. She has tried everything. She's gotten to the point. This is the uh, 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 text that we have from verse 25 through 34. She's uh, heard about Jesus. She hears that he's a, but how does she get to him? She's got to go through the crowd. She's got to go through the marketplace. She's got to go past all the religious leaders. Everybody knows her because she has tried to ask them for a cure. See, she hasn't been living in obscurity, just alone. She knows and they know what her problem is because she sought them out for a cure. And so she has to go to this marketplace. She has to go into the crowd without touching them, without getting incredibly noticed and outed. She's got to get close enough to Jesus to touch his garment. You see, in the ancient world, there was this superstition it's not in the Bible. It's a superstition that if you touch the garment of a holy man, you can be healed. So she believed 
But she believed that if I could get close enough just to touch his garment, that would be enough and I could be healed. And that's why she tries to get as close as she can before she gets discovered. And she does. She touches him. And it literally says, the bleeding stopped. And she felt in her that she had been healed. What courage she must have had to go through that crowd. Because long before she could have got to Jesus, somebody could have said, oh, I know you. You can't come up in here. You can't touch the Jesus. You'll make him unclean. But she does. But I want you to know, he gives her more than she asked. She was looking for a healing. She was desperate for a healing. But he gives her so much more than a healing. You see that in verse 34, the very end of the story. Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. She was already healed of her disease. What in the world is he talking about? The first thing I want you to notice in verse 34 is what he calls her. It's the only place in all of Mark that that Jesus refers to a woman as his daughter. It's the only place. That intimacy immediately, this outcast. Imagine the holy man has come to your town. He's healing and teaching and he calls the greatest outcast, the one who can't go to worship, the one that can't live with their family, the one that can't even be seen in the marketplace and says the most intimate thing he can say to her, daughter. So the very first thing he does is he sets the entire crowd and her on edge by calling her something that nobody else has called her daughter. But the second thing, and I want you to notice, is what he says to her. Go in peace. That word peace is shalom. What he's giving her, what she's not asking for, she's asking for a healing on the outside or a healing on the inside, but what he wants to ultimately give her is a cleansing. That's what she really needs. Because even if she walked away from that place where she wasn't bleeding anymore, she still was unclean. And so he doesn't just want her to not bleed. He wants her to be clean. So that when she goes to worship, she doesn't get the shadow of the presence of God. She gets the presence himself. And the word that he chooses is the word shalom peace but not peace like I feel good now or I'm okay now that's not what he's wishing her shalom means wholeness the disease has fragmented you it has scattered you it is disintegrating you and you can even physically feel that but what I'm going to give you the lanyap I want you to have you're not even asking for and that is that you be clean, whole. Somewhere we've gotten the impression that we are already whole and the real bad people are the ones who need the grace. When in reality, the standard is, I am perfect for you are perfect. This is God talking. Be holy for I am holy. Be complete as I am complete. Be as whole as I am whole. That's, it doesn't get any easier no matter how many uh, descriptions and definitions you give to the word of holy. 
He's saying, here's my standard that you can't sin one time, not once. Because one sin separates you from me and makes you unclean. And because I'm clean, we can't touch. You can't be in my presence because of one sin. And sometimes we think that there's a graduation of sin here that, that this is really bad and this isn't all that bad. But from God's perspective, every sin causes a separation and damnation. Every sin. The little white lie that you told your spouse when she asked you, do I look good in this dress? And you say, yes, but that's not really true. All the way to the embezzlement. And even murder. I went to a seminary with a, with a man who had spent 12 years for manslaughter. I can't imagine churches struggling with, do we hire a guy who had killed someone? You see, that's our perspective But the scripture says, everyone has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one in this room who's clean. The only question is, are we desperate enough to be clean? That's what this first story teaches us, is that the shame and the guilt that we feel for our sin, the the separateness, the fact that we can't go home, the, same, the fact that worship is, an un, is a difficult place to be because I'm reminded of my sin, Jesus offers Lanyap to you today. Grace. He offers you a healing, but even more. Then the second story begins really in verse 22 where it says, then they, they uh, came... Then one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name, and seeing him, he fell at at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly, my little girl, as at the point of death. You see, he's a synagogue ruler and he begs for help because he's desperate. He's desperate because he's got nowhere else to turn and only Jesus can heal. And he humbles himself and actually the word really should be humiliates himself because you can imagine at the water hole after this is over when word gets out that Jarius has approached the rabbi that everybody else is trying to kill the one that they've called a blasphemer why in the world are you going to him and he will answer it this way who else can I go who else has healed the withered hand and the lame man who else can I go? But Jesus is delayed. They, they decide to go and immediately it says that he was delayed because he runs into this woman who stops him because he, she needs a healing too. And you can imagine Jarius is upset. He's, he's anxious because he knows every minute that we're delayed might be a minute that his daughter passes from life to death. Maybe you've heard this saying, you've been around the church long enough that you've heard this saying, it goes like this, God's timing is always the right time, even if it is not our time. You've ever heard that? God's timing is always the right time, even though it's not our time. You know, that's never tested until we think it's the wrong time. 
or we're out of time. And now what verse 35 teaches us, while he was still speaking, talking about Jesus, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? You hear this idea of I still have time is until he gets this. I got news for you, Jarius. I know you've been hoping to get the rabbi closer that he can heal your daughter, but it's too late. She has died. So don't trouble him any further. He doesn't need to come to your house. You see, faith is needed. You are asked to trust despite the evidence. And even when the evidence is to the contrary. Before that, it's not faith. Check out Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is only faith when you can't see it. And in fact, when the evidence is to the contrary. Which is why Jesus in verse 36 says, as soon as he hears that, he says, do not fear, only believe. What is he going to believe? His friends just said, your, your daughter's dead. In order for them to continue to process, to progress to the family, he has to believe that God can give him more than a healing. Because it's going to take more than a healing. She's dead. He's got to believe in the Jesus who can give grace a little bit more than just a healing. By the time they get there to the house, he can hear the mourners. Because... In the ancient world, when someone dies, if you don't want to do the mourning, that is, you can afford it. He's a wealthy man. You can afford it. You can hire people, usually women, who will come to your house. And even though it's not a personal loss for them, they can wail for you. They can cry a death song so that everybody in the neighborhood, everybody that lives around your house, hears that somebody is dead there. And that way it kind of saves you. If you've got the money, you can pay people. These are professional mourners. They go from house to house to house where dead people are. To let people know that someone has died. The problem is, when Jesus gets there, he says, what are y'all doing? She's not dead, she's asleep. That sounds weird. She's dead. You know, if Monty Python was here, we would be saying that she's mostly dead. The truth is, she's all dead. She's all dead. How can Jesus say that she's just asleep? Because he's been saying ever since chapter 1 that he's the king. But not like other kings. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, the spiritual realm. And he's the Lord of the storm, the physical realm. And now he's saying, I'm even Lord of death. I'm the king over death. And therefore, death to me is like sleep. All you need is me to wake you up. And that's what he does. He uses an Aramaic, which was the language that Jesus spoke. He said, Talitha kumi. Now, the, uh, my translation uh, uh, says little girl, but that sounds not intimate enough of what that word Talitha means. It means, honey, sweetie, whatever you call your daughter, get up. In fact, it says that he took her hand and as if she had been sleeping, he said, rise. 
And in our text says she did. She got up, she walked, and then he said, go get her something to eat. How beautiful this picture is. Jairus was looking for a healing. But if he wasn't desperate, he would have never been open to a resurrection. And so the last thing I want us to think about it before we leave is the cost of grace. That is, that grace is costly, it's expensive. In fact, it's almost oxymoronic to call grace expensive. To say that grace is costly because we grow up in churches, evangelical churches, that grace is free. How do you reconcile that? How do you say that grace is costly and yet grace is free? It is because it's who it's free to. You see, for us to understand grace, we have to see that grace is free to the recipient, to the person who receives it. It didn't cost them anything, but it is expensive to the giver. For grace to be grace, it has to be free to the recipient. If it costs you anything, it's not grace. It's something, but it's not grace. But if it's true grace, the person who gave the grace absorbed the entire cost himself, herself. And that's what we have. The picture of here is the cost of his touch. His touch ends their nightmare. But he takes their hand. But in order to take their hand, he has to let go of his father's hand in heaven. Have you ever thought about that? That grace means for you to receive grace, for me to receive grace, free. He had to let go of his father's hand that he had been holding for all eternity. The relationship between the father and the son is so intimate that where one begins and one ends is indistinguishable until the cross And there he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In order for us to get the free grace, it had to cost him his life. But more than his life. I know death is important, but he knew a resurrection was coming. So how tough could that have been? The torment in the garden was not that he was going to die. The torment in the garden is that he was going to lose his father. Even if it seemed like to us just hours. It is something he had never experienced in all of eternity. In order to give us grace, it cost him his relationship with his father on the cross. Because I told you, for the wages of sin is death and death. Sin separates us from God. And the only way that we can be clean is for the clean to become unclean. And now what 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, He who knew no sin became sin. On the cross, the cleanest being in the cosmos became soiled. He became dirty. He became filthy because he took on our sin. And that caused the Father in heaven to turn his back. That's why it's dark. 
That's why the temple curtain is torn in two. And that's why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the cost of grace. On the cross, death stung Jesus. So that death can have no sting for you. The grave claimed Jesus so that the grave has no victory over you. That's why George MacDonald, when he writes his poem on this passage, he says this, the lower you lay me, the higher he will raise me. And so the only question that we have to contemplate here, and it's so hard because we look so good on the outside. Are you desperate enough for grace? Are you desperate enough for grace? Have you tried everything to solve your shame? But the one thing that truly can clean you. If you're desperate here today, here's the good news. Jesus is willing to cleanse you. That's why he went to the cross. And the same thing that was required of the woman, the same thing that was required of the man who had a daughter, these two lives that were very different brought together to show us this, that grace is received by faith, not by your efforts, not by you showing up on Sunday morning, not by you having consecutive quiet times, not by you memorizing scripture, not by you sharing the faith. Simply receive that he's done it and you're covered. You've received the lanyard of grace. The joy of ministry The joy of ministry is always connecting desperate people to grace. It's not about your effort. It's not about my effort. It's not about anyone's effort except Jesus. And allowing you to get what you're not even asking for. You want the pain to stop. You want to get away from the consequences of your sin. Goes on and on. But the one thing we're not asking for that we all desperately need is to be clean. Because for us to have a relationship with God, we must be clean. The unclean cannot touch the clean. But God, the clean, has touched us at a great cost to himself. And we receive that by faith. So let's do that now. Father, we thank you that we, we who are unclean, and maybe for the first time this morning, somebody is seeing themselves that way. And maybe people who have been in the church for decades have never thought of themselves as unacceptable to you because of sin. And maybe it hasn't been big, uh, uh, glorious sin, but just simple sins even acceptable sins in the eyes of the church. Not that big a deal. But to you, we all stand on the outside looking in. But we want to be in. We've got other 
ailments and problems and struggles that are all caused by sin, ours or someone else's, or just the fact that we live in a fallen world, and we need grace. We are desperate for your grace. Because no matter how we live on this planet, we want to be with you. We want to have a relationship with you. We want you to come and have your being with us and change us from the inside out into the image of Christ. And we recognize that's the work of the Holy Spirit through sanctification. But the very beginning is just simply to believe. And so I pray that we can do that now with each other, for each other, and to each other. Help us, Father, to walk this way with each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.